Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring and pick from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive, unique designs you can't find anywhere else. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang. That's BrilliantEarth.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is Stephen Ranella, the world famous outdoorsman hunter who has a show on Netflix called Meat Eater. He's published several books and he has a widely listened to podcast. Very excited to talk to him. We spoke about a variety of things. I am not a hunter, it's something I'm trying to learn and get better at. It's something that my parents prevented me from indulging in, believe it or not, when I was a kid, I had the opportunity to learn how to bow hunt quite a bit living in Virginia, but that just wasn't going to be the case because there are a lot of deer in Virginia. That being said, it's a touchy subject and hunting and fishing are a mystery to a lot of people, including myself. Harvesting food from the wild is something that most Americans probably see as a fringe pursuit, not just Americans, many cooks. I'm not a professional hunter, I do like to fly fish quite a bit, and it's something that I've gotten very deep into and the conservation movement for trout and such and permit in saltwater. But I've had relatively little experience hunting, and it's something that I want to learn more about, particularly the conservation and wildlife management, because how it's related to food production, it just overlaps tremendously. So if you've never hunted before, or if it's something you want to find out a little bit more about, you're going to be surprised at just how complex the whole ecosystem of hunting is. If you find hunting distasteful, which many of my friends and colleagues might, I completely understand because I think hunting and um, the right to own guns often gets conflated. And I'm not going to talk about that today because it's too complex of an issue for a guy like me to handle. And I don't know exactly what hunting should be other than I do believe in gun control 100%. But this podcast, I guess, is going to explore the pursuit of hunting and what that means to a cook today. Because if you eat meat, you owe it to yourself to listen to our guest this week. We have Stephen Ranella, who's probably America's most interesting, probably most respected hunters in the world today in America. He's got a Netflix show. He's had several seasons of doing that, a podcast that's widely listened to. And he's got numerous books. Most recently, he published a book called The Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook. He's incredibly knowledgeable to speak about the subject because he's thought about it so much. He's sort of lived this life and it shows, all right? The guy knows his shit. A lot of vegans and vegetarians actually listen to him because he has such deep understanding of what it means to eat meat today as a sort of hunter that wants to cook delicious things from meat that he's harvested. It's a subject that few people are talking about in the food world. I know that Kim Severson of the New York Times wrote a great article about hunting and the movement of chefs today and trying to sort of reclaim what that means for a chef. In February of 2019, you should check that article out. But most of the meat eaters I know, or even my guests or my cooks, have never thought about what it actually means to kill something. And it's something I've wrestled with for most of my culinary career. I know some people might be uncomfortable listening to a discussion about hunting, but I encourage you to listen and hear what Steve has to say about it. You might still disagree with hunting, but I bet a lot of you will come away with a different understanding of it. And I think, I think the only thing we can do is to have a better understanding of what it means to be a hunter today and how that really affects sort of the restaurant universe and, and what we think about eating meat today. So I'll shut the fuck up. And here is my conversation with Stephen Ranella. Congrats to everything, man. Thank you. Yeah, the, your show, how many seasons do you have done now? We just had our seventh season. Our, our show moved around a little bit. We're, our seventh season, 
just recently went up on Netflix. So it was like 16 episodes as a Netflix original. So that's where it's at right now. Is, but he, yeah, is we, he still shooting that? Yeah. So they do they do production on the show. Yeah. They produced all of our seasons, um, same place. So one over 100 episodes. So long run, man. Kind of like unusual for a show, but it's sort of an unusual type show. Like, I mean, the whole structure around it, right? The fact that it could kind of move around. But yeah, seven seasons. We actually, we're filming our eighth right now. Eighth season. Nice. I think when someone, and I was up my own ass so much probably 10 years ago that I had no idea. Someone at ZPZ, probably like Chris or someone was like, hey, I have this idea for a show. This guy's amazing. Steven Renella. Renella. How do I pronounce your last name? Renella. Renella. Yeah, he nailed it. And he's this just is, like this crazy. Is 10 years ago? Yeah, this yeah. is like, and I remember I was like, it just seems like a hunting show. What's so different about that? Yeah. And I just, it went over my head because I had never hunted before. Yeah. I had yeah. no idea. And I think, it, that's, I think that, that's a lot of people look at it. And we, I think we have a lot of people watch a show that start watching it because they want to hate it so bad. And I didn't want to hate it. I honestly, <laughs> I just didn't understand what would be so compelling about it because I grew up on watching ESPN in the mornings when they would have those hunting shows. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't understand what was going to be so compelling about it. And then, honestly, like, it kept on going year after year, and I would catch a couple episodes, but I didn't quite understand until I actually went hunting for, like, the first time. And I was like, oh, he's doing something that is, like, at a whole level that I will never understand. Yeah. And it's like watching a home cook versus someone that's in, like, a three-mission star kitchen. Oh, I got you. You know, and I have a mad respect for what you've done. And now you have this whole company now. Yeah. What are you guys doing for Immediate Inc.? Oh, we're we're involved in a lot of things, but kind of the primary focus is I'd always wanted to have the ability to expand the, I don't even want to call it a universe. It was a singular planet, me, and I wanted to expand it into a little bit of a universe of of like-minded people in the in the outdoor, hunting, fishing, conservation, culinary space. And, you know, expand it out to include other content contributors and also just get into other things. So um, we just had a book come out. You know, we just had a wild game cookbook come out with Random House called the Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook. And that was a big success for us. And we have a growing podcast network, do a lot of online video, digital content, new media stuff, traditional media. So we're just involved in a lot of different aspects of the media space, but all dealing with outdoor pursuits, right? Do you have to be an outdoorsman to follow your interests? No, I, I find, no, we even have, I pay attention to the outlier feedback that we get, but it's kind of weird that we have a growing number of even like vegans who watch the show. What? Yeah, because people are just, people are, are sort of fascinated by these really in-depth discussions and dealings with nature. I think that one of the things that a life of doing what I've done, you become pretty well informed on wildlife politics and wildlife issues and land management issues. And I think that a, a lot of people who, like I said, man, they might start watching the show because they just want to hate it really bad. But then they look at it and it kind of touches something pretty deep inside of them around this shared respect and infatuation with wildlife mm -hmm. in the natural world. And so, yeah, a lot of people travel to it like this voyeuristic glimpse into these intricate relationships in nature. So I'm always having two conversations, too, in the stuff that I do, whether it's in a podcast or in my writing or in my TV show, I'm doing two things at once is I'm talking to, <laughs> I'm talking to like the guys I grew up with, right? The guys whose lives are defined by hunting and fishing concerns about wildlife conservation. Like I'm talking to those guys, but I'm also sort of talking out the other side of my mouth in a way to people who might be very suspicious of this whole thing. They might be suspicious of what they perceive to be maybe cruel treatment of animals they might be suspicious of why would someone want to kill something. The person I'm not interested in in my conversations, like when I'm talking to these different audiences, the one I'm not interested in is like your, your general person who consumes meat and eats meat but has a problem with hunting. Right. Where it's, then it's just like a mindset that I that's so uninteresting to me that I, I don't spend a lot of time talking to that person, but I do spend time talking to the— in my head, I'm talking to the extremes, right? Can you explain as to— why you won't speak to him because it might be illuminating to someone that might feel that way right now. Oh, when someone has contradictions that are so obvious, I feel like they haven't thought about something very long. And it's so obvious they should have felt that it's necessary to reconcile the contradiction. And the fact that they haven't gotten around something that obvious makes me kind of question where they're at intellectually. 
but it still is prevalent. Yeah, it's super prevalent, man. I guess I shouldn't say that I'm not talking to him because everything I say would pertain to what they're talking about, but it's just sort of this like grotesque hypocrisy that it winds up being uninteresting to me, you know? How do you change that? Well, okay, let's say I was going to go talk to him. Because it seems that you're a person that wants to affect change, right? Yeah, for sure. And you can align your own interests that you love with the outdoors, preservation, hunting, being respectful to nature, consuming meat that you hunt, and educating. And part of that is like being able to like make change, right? I try to do that in what I do, but— What what are the changes you drive for? I want people to be more open. Yeah. Ultimately, it's— Just generally. To be more patient in their judgment of things, particularly when it comes to food. I can't talk about hunting, even though I I admire it and I want to learn more about it. I can only do what I do in my restaurants and stuff like this, right? And I'm still learning. But when someone tells me a viewpoint that I believe is patently wrong and not backed with sufficient data, and then it's really a belief based on bias or ignorance, I guess for me, it's, I don't want to not talk to them. I'm like, okay, now I have to understand why they believe this. All right. I accept the challenge there. Now, let's take something that winds up being like someone who despises hunting. Let's take something that winds up being offensive to them. And let's just take for granted this person will go buy chicken wings. They'll go down to <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings, right, and get some chicken wings. Or they'll buy a burger, wherever they buy burgers, McDonald's, I don't know. And they see a picture of some dude, and he's got a dead deer in front of him. And the dude's real happy, okay? They're looking at like, but wow, this person is glorifying this death. Here's this person, they're like big smile on their face. They got a rifle. They've taken this life in some violent fashion. And here they are happy about it, okay? And people look at that and it's offensive to them. What's going on is they're looking and they're, I feel that they're looking and they're imagining it's like some level of guilt around animal death. Now, if you're vegetarian or you're vegan, You've thought about that guilt around animal death, and you've decided, like, I don't want to take part in it. I don't want to contribute to it through the consumption of animal products. So you've looked and you stepped away. But for the person who does eat meat, it's like you're complicit in animal death. But yet you're mad about someone who's happy about something. But wouldn't it be better if you're in a position of, like, the joyous deer hunter who's like, yeah, man. I'm contributing to animal death. I understand this case of it, though. I'm involved in it. And yeah, man, I'm really happy about this thing that I will now eat. It brings joy to me. Rather than bringing some some sensation of guilt in the back of your head where you're just willing to act like someone else is doing it, I'm not really involved in it, but you're consuming it all the time. If you eat meat in restaurants, even if you go buy... I don't want to keep slamming on McDonald's. You go buy a chicken McNugget. I mean, there's dozens of chickens in that thing. It's like a puree of death. But you don't own any of those particular things. And you don't have any reason to feel, most people have no reason to feel like guilty about the death. They don't feel happy about the death. They don't even regard it or consider it as death. But it's surprising to me when they look at someone who is very open about what just happened, but finds it in them to see that it's a joyous interaction for them to have gone out and harvested one's own food. It's being respectful of where your food came from, ultimately. Yeah, but why is it so offensive to people that you'd be happy about it? That's the thing I don't understand. Like, to go out and hunt a deer— I can see it bothers you because it it bothers me (laughs) in different levels, but I have to teach that to cooks when they come in. We get these beautiful spring lambs raised for us, and then someone treats it like crap. They cut it poorly. They overcook it. I'm like, hey, man, like, if you were lucky enough to actually spend time raising the whole thing and take its life, which you didn't have to do, it was done for you— I guarantee you wouldn't be so careless about this. Yeah. And I try to not forget that. It doesn't grow on trees, but that's just the world we live in. Most people have no connection to their food. Zero. Zero. Absolutely nothing. None. And they, and they, they can't even comprehend it as something that was once alive. And, and so that's like, if I imagine, you're asking about affecting change. If I imagine affecting some amount of change, it would be, you know, the thing I like to talk about a lot and want people to be aware of is the story of, American wildlife and how it came to be that we have the beautiful system that we have and that we have how we have the amount of wildlife that we have. And if you look at what we've done and what we've accomplished around wildlife, there's nothing like it in the whole world. And we've had tremendous successes. It almost doesn't even make sense that we would have the wildlife resources and the landscape resources that we have when you consider our population, our economic footprint. No one else has done anything close to what we've done. 
Is that all praise to Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, he's a central figure in the story. And another central figure in the story is the you know American outdoorsmen and women having like built this system and created like a very sustainable wildlife system. And so, yeah, to affect change, that's the thing that I like to talk about. And that's the thing that a lot of my friends like to talk about. And then what about this? I was just reading the newspaper yesterday about, and I think I saw one of your episodes, you were actually trying to hunt for this grouse as well. Is that the same lands that Trump's trying to change right now? Oh, the sage grouse? Yeah. Yeah. Is that the one that's like a flying turkey, you said, or something like that? Yeah. Well, people call them like, you know, it's like the B-52 of birds. It's this big lumbering bird sage grouse. And here you have an animal, you know, well, a bird that lives in what we call the sagebrush sea. So the great sagebrush landscapes, which you have some in the Great Plains and then also in the Great Basin where you have an environment that many people would look at and feel maybe was the untrained eye might look and feel that it was like a boring landscape, just like seas of sagebrush. And this is kind of one of the emblematic creatures of the sagebrush sea is the sage grouse. Sage grouse have been in, you know, long-term decline, very much linked to habitat destruction. So they're like a pretty shy bird. They don't do well around a lot of human encroachment. And so as we've destroyed sagebrush habitats for a plethora of reasons, um, people buying, building houses, oil and gas development, all manner of things that, you know, wind farm development. There's all manner of things that have like reduced sage grouse habitat. And so. But that's been going on for a long time. People have been fighting over sage grouse habitat for a long, long time. Um, Just so happens that these places are (laughs) like unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the sage grouse that the environs they happen to live in also tend to be unrelated to what's on the surface of the ground there right now, tend to be places that are rich with oil and gas. And they also tend to live on a lot of federally managed public lands. And so as we're looking at doing more more drilling and mineral extraction and oil and gas work on federally managed public lands, you're looking at diminishing habitat. And with this bird, like a lot of people don't really know about this bird, right? Like people don't pay attention about this bird. You'll find that one of the biggest pieces of advocacy coming for this bird are coming from People like to hunt sage grouse. And it sounds really contradictory. When I wrote my second book, I wrote a book called American Buffalo in Search of a Lost Icon. And it was a book about the story of the American buffalo. And like every, every like person who came up through school in, in America heard about, you know, one time we had 40 some million buffalo running around on the American landscape at the time of European contact. And we whittled it down to like 75 animals in the lower 48. And since then we've rebuilt it up to a half million of them, 94% are privately owned, right? It's, it's like a, we saved the animal from genetic extinction, but we did not save them from ecological extinction, which was something we're still working on today. So I write this book about this whole story. And as part of this, I actually hunted a buffalo one time up in Alaska where they're not native. But I use that trip as a way of explaining this broader story. And you can watch that on one of your seasons of uh, your show, right? Yeah, I might've mentioned a part of it. I didn't film that right. as long before I was doing TV. But the point is, I was trying to make is when I would go around and do interviews, you know, like radio interviews and stuff promoting the book. The first question I was mind would be like, if you love these animals so much, how could you have killed one? It winds up being like, yeah, this book is a 276 page answer to that question. Like, this is what I'm talking about. Where does wildlife advocacy come from and what does it look like? So in so many ways, you're just dealing with moral dilemmas then. <laughs> yeah, I love moral dilemmas, man. We deal with them all the time. Like that's one of my favorite things about you know, our podcast has a strong, like, w- without it being like, it's not hand-wringy, but it has a strong, like, we, we wrestle with a lot of ethics. Because this is, this whole subject is replete with ethics because it has to do with what is your relationship with food? What is your relationship with the natural world? And people struggle with it, man. And it was a point I was thinking of not long ago. If you'd have gone back, like, I like to read about Ice Age hunters. So the first humans that came out of Siberia and crossed into North America, you know, 15, 20,000 years ago, like what their lives were like, right? Because they colonized the landscape so rapidly that when you look at like what they did and how quickly they did it, for a long time, the oldest site we knew about was all the way down in Chile, right? These people just hadn't even had time to like really leave a permanent record on the landscape and they were already down in South America. So they were like moving fast. And you have to think that what pushed them along was just like curiosity. What's over the next hill? They weren't fleeing warfare. They weren't fleeing like depleted resources. They're just like dying to know, like in my mind, they're like dying to know what's down the next line, right? So when I think about them a lot, I always imagine like, were they wrestling with 
were they wrestling with the ethics of what they did? When they came up and killed a mammoth who'd never laid eyes on humans before, and they presumably just kind of like walked up to it and slayed it, did they then have to sit around at night being like, dude, was that the right thing to do? So what do you think? I think that they probably talked about parts of it. They probably talked about parts of it, or maybe they had an idea of it. I don't know if you're familiar with like the Pleistocene extinctions, but all that stuff, you know, all these species that went extinct, like contemporaneous with the arrival of man. And there's this idea, you know, it's a pretty well-accepted idea that the arrival of human hunters definitely had, was a contributing factor in the fact that we lost nine genera of large mammals in the Western Hemisphere when human, around the time humans arrived from horses, mammoths, mastodons, all this stuff died off, probably killed off. And you wonder, like, what was their, like, sense? Or what, did they feel an ethical dilemma? But these guys, these linguists in New Zealand were looking at the native language to find markers for how they might have comprehended the extinction of the moa, right? This very large, you know, these, like, couple hundred pound birds that used to run around in New Zealand. And they hunted them to extinction. And they can find, like, linguists looking in the indigenous language can sort of find phrases and things that demonstrate an awareness that, like, wow, they're gone. Like, we wiped them out. Wow. So it could be, yeah, it could be that those people did have wrestle with ethics. But when I was growing up hunting and fishing, we never talked about this shit ever, ever. We didn't talk about your responsibility to the landscape at all. At all. Okay. Like, I never heard the word conservation in any kind of meaningful sense. It was just there. And we didn't understand how it got there. How did it become meaningful to you then? Once I realized that it can go away. We just roamed around on the open landscape when I was a kid, man. We went wherever you we wanted. You grew up in Michigan. Yeah. We just hunted and fished everywhere. We never thought about, we never thought about that you'd do anything to make sure it stayed that way. And we even had national forests near us. And we just treated it like it fell from the sky. It was just there for the taking. You right. took as much as you could get and get it now. It was like, it was my attitude growing up. And it was only later when I realized the finiteness of things, man. Like to see stuff destroyed. Then later, I guess in my 30s, I started to become aware of the morals and ethics and obligations, man. Not in a burden in some way, but definitely aware of it. And then I felt like I had a lot of um, a lot of making up to do. I think that's the same for chefs. Yeah, how so? I didn't know anything. You cook what you are supposed to get, and then you know you're supposed to get the best thing. And I think about ordering black bass in like 2000, 2001. Okay. As a local fish. Now, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just, you just don't get it. Like, I think about... I'm a avid fly fisherman, and I can't even believe that 30, 40 years ago, I could go to the Connecticut River and catch salmon. Yeah. That doesn't happen, right? Like, there's so many fish in my lifetime that are not available anymore. And I'm just talking about fish. I don't even understand what the hell else is actually going to be gone. Yeah. So, it allows there, me to better are, understand that. Are there things that, are there things you won't order that you could order? For a long time, the, the prevailing wisdom, at least for me, that was taboo was, can you serve veal? Yeah. Can you serve veal? And someone came up to me that was a very progressive farmer. She doesn't have the farm anymore, unfortunately, in Virginia. And she said, I'm raising ethical veal. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, what it is just that? doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Ethical veal? And she was going around all the dairy farms. And if you are a dairy farmer and you happen to raise a male bull yeah literally you lost the genetic lotto they only need one or two bulls what are they going to do with all these male cows well they just become steers to go into the food chain right but there is a possibility that the price point is going to be more for them i mean they're going to make more money possibly selling it as a veal than to feed it and then to sell it as a steer gotcha so that was the, the, at least the idea of it, right? So to basically gather all the, not every male cow, right? Some would be steers, some would become bulls, but there would be a small market ever fluctuating that she was trying to create a market where restaurants could get veal that needed to be served. Yeah. And I was like, I'm in, I want to know more. Go down the farm, taste it. It's not like milky. It's not anything. It's just Young, young cow. Yeah, that's why I'm. Little, like, that's why on this subject, I'm a little bit over my waders because I don't really understand. Isn't it? This probably isn't that interesting to you either. But veal just means like a certain age. It doesn't yeah, yeah, necessarily yeah. mean that someone was no. But we, confining we consider it, it has to be. People think it has to be like white. Yeah, like milk is not or is not veal. Yeah, yeah, milk fed. There used to be a thing that I was. Uh, there's like some commercially produced food items that I have felt off putting, foie gras. That's the holy grail of hot button subjects in food. Dude, I know, man. 
And like, you know, at times I've been like, right, I couldn't bring myself to eat it. And then I was, I'd see it and I'd eat some, but it's one of those ones that messes with me. And then I was talking to someone who was a producer and, you know, it seems like this kind of like grotesque thing to like intentionally overfeed this bird. But, but he's like, oh, you know, the birds like gather around, they want all that corn, you know, you can't prevent them from wanting it and they just want to eat it all. I don't know, man. I guess that's why for me, one of the things that's so appealing about wild foods is that I appreciate the environment and life that they live in a way that it's really inspiring to me, you know? And you're also cutting out the middleman, which is guys like me. Yeah. <laughs> so I do, and and if you're going to present, like I eat livers out of Canada geese, man. It's not even kind of the same thing as foie gras, but if I was presented with a Canada goose liver where here's this bird doing these massive migrations and super fit animal and very abundant, probably, there's far more Canada geese on the landscape now than there were at the time of European contact, right? very sustainable food source. It's not as good as foie gras, but just something to me about like this super fit bird. I'd rather eat that liver than some like kind of diseased bird running around in a cage of some guy sticking a funnel down its throat. You know, but there are people who eat foie gras. I can guarantee you there are people who eat foie gras would look and they'd be like very suspicious of a dude who goes out with a shotgun and shoots geese out of the sky. Ultimately, if you're not going to eat meat like you do, Everything else is going to be not perfect, essentially. And it's a moral dilemma that I wrestle with a lot. How do I get all the best ingredients from practices that I also believe in? Yeah. And it doesn't always match up, right? Like, it's harder and harder to match up to verify the source. So, I don't know if we can talk about this further without talking about it for weeks at a time because it's so multifaceted and... Now I'm understanding a little bit of the world you live in because this is basically <laughs> everything that people eat, right? Yeah. So and you go and hunt. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to like send you down a weird path on. Oh, on that's just subject. me in general, was, man. We could bring, be talking about football. I'll be down this road. I was just, yeah, I was just bringing <laughs> up that there. And I've eaten some things that would, you know, I've been in situations where I've eaten some things that would be very upsetting to people if they heard that I consume them. And talking about you know traveling in other countries and and whatnot, but. I was just pointing out that there are things that I encounter where I do look and be like, man, is that the kind of thing I want to be involved in? Right. You know, around domestically produced foods. Likewise, there are things in hunting that that I don't go near when it comes like down to hunt. Well, you know, the beauty here is that you have, like, if you have faith in the wildlife management systems that we have in place, you have state fish and game agencies that that regulate harvest. And so, by law, they have to regulate harvest with long-term viability of the resource in mind. So if you are following your hunting and fishing rules, which are like extremely complex and very tailored on a micro level to all the different, you know, environments and ecosystems that we have, if you follow those rules, you're generally in the clear. But there are some things that I just don't hunt. Things that you could hunt that I particularly don't. For example, you know, one time I ate some coyote meat and that doesn't sound good. No, no. man. And, um, <laughs> and, and when I was growing up, I was a trapper when I was a kid, you know, and then when coyotes started coming into our area, I would catch coyotes. I'd sell the hides. And then later after I was done trapping and later I was down in Mexico and me and my buddy got a coyote and roasted the coyote up. And th- it was just, I didn't like it. It was similar. Like I had gone to Vietnam one time and I was around the Tet holiday and had eaten domestic dog in Vietnam. And I always got this like burning hot sensation from eating it. They described it as a hot food. But I was like, when I ate it, I was like, dude, that heat is guilt, man. That's what that that heat is. And like eating coyote, I felt the same thing. Like I felt that same kind of like burning weirdness that I got when I had been served domestic dog. And so since then, I've never touched another one of them. How do you explain this to someone that will never understand that, that is a cultural thing? Well, that's what I, well, yeah, that's like, as a writer, that's what I was trying to delve into, man. I mean, okay, we eat a lot of beef in this country, okay? Go to India and talk about that. Like, different people have different food systems. Like, our perception of certain animals is not ordained. Like, our perception of animals and our do's and don'ts are are things that are are built over time within your culture. You ever hear of a historian named Francis Parkman? I have not. Okay, so Francis Parkman wrote sort of the definitive history of the French and Indian War. In 1846, he was, I think, I don't know if he was asthmatic. He had a respiratory ailment. And in 1846, Francis Parkman 
went out to travel on the Great Plains just to go go to an arid environment, which might be helpful. And he traveled on the Great Plains and spent some time with the Lakota Sioux and the Black Hills. And went and he describes how when someone was receiving a guest, they would pick a fat puppy and prepare that fat puppy as a ceremonial dish to serve to a guest. We just have different people have built up different sort of tolerances with the things they eat. And then Lewis and Clark described many of the same things out on the Great Plains. This dish that you're served when you're an honored guest, this is the thing we eat. And so these are things I like to think about and wrestle with. And so I went and, you know, years ago, went and wrote a story about it. But to get back to this coyote thing, I never liked eating the dog because of where I'm from and my relationship to dogs that I've owned and where I've been raised and, you know, I'm the sort of cultural baggage I've built up. It was very off-putting to me and eating a coyote brought that same thing back. It was like this canine thing. And so I've never touched another one since. Meaning, here's a thing that's, you know, widely available that I just don't like, don't want to touch. It's taboo for me, right? It is a cultural taboo. And I'm imagining all the people that are into food or listen to this podcast for food being like, what the fuck? Why are these guys talking about this? I actually feel like it might be an important thing to talk about just to get some moral relativism as to how you view something in another culture, right? Like, I can't eat my dog. That's just never going to fucking happen. Yeah. Right? In fact, having a dog has made me appreciate animal life in ways that I did not anticipate, you know? So. Yeah, I was I was with the, I'm going to say Chupic Eskimo, and someone's going to say, dude, you can't say that word. But I asked and was told by the Chupic gentleman that I was hanging out with. He's like, if I'm not, and Eskimo, I don't know what I am. That's what I am. <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> so I was with the Chupic Eskimo and they were What would be the PC way? There's a lot of confusion about Inuit. There's a lot of confusion about Inuit and Eskimo, okay? And so like where it's right. appropriate to use Inuit, you know, in the high Arctic and Canada and other areas, but this is in the the Chupic, living on an island in the Siberian see, right? And, and I was like, dude, I don't know. I keep hearing that I'm not supposed to say that that's what you are, but I don't really understand. He's like, yeah, Chupic Eskimo, please. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyways, we were eating seal oil. We went out ice fishing and caught some cod and we're dipping the raw cod slices in seal oil. I would never in a million years, ever in a million years, harm a hair on the head of a seal. Okay. Nor would I be willing to take it if it came through, because, you know, you have the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is like an important piece of legislation to save marine mammals. They're exempt. I would never go near one. Wouldn't even think of it. But in this context of being at this man's table, and this is what they like to eat, and this is how we eat it, I ate it and quite enjoyed it in that context. It would have been very off-putting to me in another context. So I've been getting a lot of shit from uh, <laughs> in the ugly, delicious Netflix Season one, mm-hmm. I'm in China when the hutongs and Dave Cho wants to eat donkey because our translator is like, donkey is the best beat in the world. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Donkey. Number one, dragon, number two. <laughs> like okay. everything else is like three. I was like, did you just make this shit up? And no, it's like donkey is like one of the most widely praised meats. And I was like, no, I'm not going to fucking eat this. Yeah, I just won't. If I was in someone's home and they cooked it for me, I would gladly eat it. Would I be excited to eat it? No. And I think that's a big difference, man. Yeah. I don't want to be disrespectful. I wound up, I felt like disrespecting a lot of people, but I wasn't trying to disrespect. I was like, no, I'm not going to go out of my way to spend my money in a restaurant just to try something as a dare. Yeah, I got you. You don't like to do the dare game. No, that's that's not for me, man. You know, at the end of the day, man, I eat a lot of deer meat, right? (laughs) And we have, in this country... We have a problem where in many areas we have the typical problem in this country is too many deer. Yep. We have too many deer. I eat a shitload of deer meat. I eat like a pretty clean, normal, like in my mind, a pretty clean, normal diet. You look extraordinarily healthy. (laughs) This is true. I eat a clean, normal diet. And I'm just, I'm focusing right now. I'm talking about these, like this handful of like fairly like isolated, weird instances. But day in and day out, if you go to the Ranella household, it's me, my wife, my three kids. We were on a phone call. What, What was the thing that you were talking about that needed to be refrigerated? Oh, a buddy of mine. Okay, here's... Dude, you want to get another real sticky, thorny one? <laughs> There's a piece of uh, bison meat that was gifted to me by... Hear me out. It was gifted to me by someone who works for a group called the American Prairie Reserve. And the American Prairie Reserve is a project that's going on in north-central Montana where people are trying to 
through private land purchases and other things are trying to build a Great Plains, basically like a grasslands eco reserve. If their plan works out over the decades, that would be much larger than Yellowstone National Park. Wow. Okay. So like a, like a Serengeti of the American Great Plains. A part of that, along with a host of other wildlife species that they're trying to recover and, and bring back. And this is like a little bit, there's some controversy here that I'll not get into about what they do and how they do it. But I'm just telling you, like from their perspective, this is the goal to do this and, and bring back wildlife. And even there, with a project like that, it involves some harvest. It involves like the animals that they have, like the bison produce faster than they can accumulate land to put them on. Uh. So I was gifted a chunk of this here meat and it's at a fridge and work and I forgot about it and I was calling my buddy to check on it. He said it's still partially frozen. So there is a chunk of meat that carries with it a very elaborate story. And uh. someone might look and, and be like, but yeah, I thought a hundred years ago, those things were almost virtually extinct. How could one eat them now? And I'm like, you know what? By eating that, you're actually taking part in a, a dramatic recovery effort. Mm. All this shit, dude, it winds up being rich, man. I remember a comedian saying how certain stories over time kind of make their own gravy. And uh, all this stuff around food, especially the intersection of food and wildlife, dude, it's rich, rich areas of inquiry. A lot. I spent a whole damn career talking about this stuff, man. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. And now back to the show. I have so many things to ask. I have one more because I know you got to get out of here. But um, one of my first chefs I worked for was Avid Hunter in upstate New York. And I just was like, man, how am I ever going to fucking find the time? I want to know how to do this more. Yeah. The next step was I want to like kill my own pig that I raised. Because so, if I'm going to sell fucking pig, I need to know. I need to know what, it, what, what I'm doing. Yeah. And that was not fun, but I'm glad I did it. I learned did a lot it. from him. Yeah, yeah. I helped raise some cows, like helping that birthing process. Like to see that from start to finish it fucks you up, like in the best possible way, right? Did, did it ever turn you off and be like, dude, I can't do pigs anymore? No suckling pigs. Really? Out. Okay. And I try my best. Whenever one of my chefs want to put it on the menu, I'm like, you go and kill a baby pig. If you can't do it, don't fucking serve it. Because <laughs> there's no... There's no a, you know what? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I like, man. <laughs> there's I like no point. Yeah. There's no fucking point to serve a baby pig because it's going to make the farmer more money to bring it to full weight. And... Good luck. Good luck trying to crack that fucking neck. Good fucking luck. Because you're going to be like, no, I can't do it. So what's the point? Selling suckling pig, even though I will eat it occasionally, I'm guilt-ridden as fuck because I'm like... Really? I don't have a lot of experience with it. It's delicious, but it's also like... I imagine I'm like Marie Antoinette eating that shit. You know what I mean? It's like... It's completely illogical and unnecessary to eat. Dude, you're a hard guy to work with, man. A lot of people fucking have said Is that. that. Are you known for that? <laughs> I don't really know. I don't probably, really know. Probably, probably. Uh, no, I have, when I have my viewpoints, I, I, I tend to be stuck in them, man. <laughs> All right, so anyways. So let me get to this thing. So I went hunting. I've been shooting birds. Um, and here's the thing. I don't tell people this. I don't have that much time off. Because I don't want people to be like, oh, this fucking guy, this guy. I was like, no, I want to know Hunt, more. This guy what? I think that like, it's still such a negative connotation. Of like someone trying to learn this stuff. Um, because you don't want it. You're like a closeted hunter because you don't want. I'm not the even public. a closeted hunter. I just oh. like, I don't want to explain myself. To people who are disapproving? Correct. Oh. I mean. I don't know. I'm the, this is just me being very honest. I'm a very, try to be as honest as possible. No, no, no I don't care. I mean, I, not that I don't care. 
not upset with you. I'm upset with the circumstances that that's something you feel like you don't want to. But you're, you're talking about it right now. Yeah, because that's what I'm like. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm just telling you why. I mean, yeah. it was also like putting it on Instagram or something, right? Like, I didn't want to celebrate it that way. But yeah. I was just telling someone like, hey, we had a good duck hunt and we're going to cook them all. And I love, I love wild duck. You like wild duck? I think it's just. I don't understand why we can't. I understand why we can't sell it because we would just obliterate the, yeah, the duck population. The dudes, dudes selling wild ducks in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, pretty much wiped them off. The but almost, when I go to when I go to Europe and I go to the UK and on the menu at Ferguson Anderson's restaurant, it's like beware of buckshot. Yeah, like, exactly. I love that. You know, that's like oh, you can't get more real than that. Yeah. And hey, I accept it, but like hunting still to I would say a certain subsect of America that is. Left of center. Yeah. It's still, whole thing is, I don't understand it, so it must be bad. Yeah. And- It's all part of the polarization of America, man. You got like New Jersey, right? A lot of states. I don't, I don't know a dog in New Jersey. I know a lot of you know, really cool hunters in New Jersey. But yeah, states where 1% of the population hunts in that state. Then you got states that have huge hunter participation. But some states, it's just not a thing. Just not a thing. Yeah. And I saw one of your shows, I think Rogan was on it, where you guys went- bow hunting for like deer in Nevada. Yeah. And you were saying like, I don't bow hunt anymore. <laughs> no, I do. I do bow hunt. But like, it's I was not bow hunting there, but like you were bow hunting, but it wasn't like your thing. You like got back to a rifle, right? Yeah. I primarily hunt with a rifle unless I'm hunting in a season. that's archery. If it's archery only, then I bow hunt. If it's like, you can do, do whatever you want. Like you can do whatever weapon choice you choose. If I can hunt with a rifle, I hunt with a rifle. So if it's restricted to archery only, then I hunt with archery. And why is that? It has to do with efficacy and also just personal preference, personal taste. A lot to do with efficacy. And what's the efficacy? It's just more sure you're going to kill yeah, the animal in worse. a clean, efficient way. For me, for sure, man. For me, for sure. And this is a then why, hotly- then why bow hunt then? Why bow hunt? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to go as the crow flies to kill something mm-hmm. that you're going to harvest, then why bow hunt? Okay. You mean like why wouldn't I just like not bow hunt at all? Why don't you use a rifle every time? Oh, because there's a lot of things I like to do. Like, for instance, elk, when they're in their rut and they're bugling a lot, they are vulnerable to harvest, okay? Because they make this loud noise. Okay? You can hear them. You can find them. They're, depending on the weather, they're out at all times of the day. They're very easy to locate. If you were to open that animal up across the board throughout their habitats where they're found, if you were to open it up to firearm harvest, you would have such high success rates that you would have to drastically limit how many people were participating in the hunt. Wow. Okay. With archery, you have comparatively very low success rates. So if you know that you're going to, let's say you have a population and you're like, we're going to allow the harvest of 10 bull elk out of this population. If you have archery success rates that are 10%, you can give 100 people an opportunity to go give it a shot. And so you're increasing how many people get a chance to go in there and have the experience. If it was going to be, we're out, we're going to kill 10. We're going to open up to rifle hunting. We're going to probably have 60 or 70% success rates when we do it this way. You're greatly diminishing how many people can have an opportunity to go interact. So in that way, like this is a system that I approve of and like, and I use that system. There's not like of the outdoor experiences to be out with a bow in that environment, chasing, bugling bulls when they're like going insane during the breeding season is something that I feel like everyone should witness, right? So I like to have it be that people can do it. But I also like to have a freezer that's got a lot of wild game in it because that's what I like to eat all year long. I like to share it with friends and and use it over the holidays and, and have access to it. So from that kind of like predator harvester mentality that I have and I'm not shy about having, generally if I'm going into a thing and and the managers who are putting that on have it open for firearm harvest, that's just where I go. That's how I like to hunt. Shit, man. I feel like I could talk to you forever. There's a reason why a lot of people want to listen to you, read your books, watch your shows. I'm thankful that you're here. But before, one more thing before I go. So if you're one of the 1% that does hunt in states like New Jersey or New York, and you want to learn, how does one be like, I want to, I want to learn how to hunt. Fuck my friends. I want to learn how to hunt. What's the, what do they do? 
how do they learn this? One of the great, I got a handful of tips. One, can I work in like an awkward plug? Yeah, of course. Okay, so. Plug all you want, man. Yeah, so our new cookbook, The Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook, Recipes and Techniques for Every Hunter and Angler is out, was just released. That's got a ton of great information in it. We also have a guidebook series, a complete guide to hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game, volumes one and two. Those are good resources that I would be remiss not to mention. But here's like a trick for people that want to get interested in this. Get involved in the conservation movement because most of the really dedicated hunters and anglers that I know have a deep concern for the well-being of wildlife in this country and want to make sure that the resources that they enjoy are here for future generations. If you love it like I love it, that's the thing that enters your mind. You're like, dude, I would take a bullet for wildlife. Okay. Mm. Long-term sense. So the real diehards find their way into the conservation movement. And there are many conservation organizations in this country um, that I could endorse from backcountry hunters and anglers, National Wild Turkey Federation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, North American Deer Alliance. They go on and on and on. There are many groups out there. Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, many of them that are hunter-fisher-based conservation groups. If you get involved as a volunteer in those organizations, you are going to meet a lot of people who are pros at this, and they're going to respect you for volunteering your time and energy to further that cause, and you will wind up. That's like my secret trick for people on how to get in with a great crew of people because generally in this country, and this is the case with me, it's like, These are ancestral pursuits that are passed down from generation to generation to generation. If you're not part of that lineage, you need to like break in. There's no Koreans that are part of that lineage, bro. Yes, it's hard to break (laughs) in. And that's that's a great way to break in is getting involved in wildlife conservation through some of the hunter and angler-based conservation groups. And then also, man, just try to find people to go out with and read. And when I was a kid, that's all I read about. It's all I read about. Cool. You're a busy man. I will let you go. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. So that was my conversation with Stephen Ronella. Very honored to have him on. Very busy guy. And we caught him in L.A. This was actually a few months ago, believe it or not, when he was on his book tour for his most recent book. It's something that I want to talk more about, not just because I want to learn how to hunt to respect the whole process of eating meat, but understand the sacrifice and the fact that if you are a meat eater, there is a lot of really difficult conversations and moral dilemmas that go into it. There's a lot. And I'm not even sure right now is the good time to talk about it, but traveling in India this year and a lot of the political conversation is about meat eating in India and just how important meat eating is to the world today. And we're not even talking about hunting. So I think that if we can better understand the idea and philosophy of hunting, that would sort of be on the extremes of meat eating because you're literally harvesting your own meat. It almost should, in theory, in my world, better prepare us to talk about cultural conversations and religious conversations about eating meat. But it touches on a lot of different things, green market, sustainability, taboo, meat eating, so on and so forth. You know, I have learned to fly fish over the years, as I said earlier in the introduction. And fly fishing to me has opened the doorway to hunting because it's something that I want to know more about meat eating. It's a more difficult conversation. The idea of eating meat, vegetarianism, veganism, sustainability, all of these things. All I know is when I go to Europe or I'm able to visit my friend's restaurants in London to be able to eat a wild bird, a wild pheasant or quail and have it taste like something that actually is wild is a very important thing to me, right? It it gets you one step closer to your food source. And I just love the idea that on the menu you can say, be careful of buckshot, right? Because we have a system in America that prevents us from eating wild game. And I think I now have a better understanding why we do, because we would obliterate all the wild game in America today. But the idea of hunting in Europe, particularly in London, seems to be a little bit more reasonable in how they manage it. But I'm just trying to get a better understanding of the whole concept of hunting in America. And I think that because it's such a hot button subject, it's something that we need to have a better understanding of. So, you know what? I'm in LA and I'm with Isaac Lee and Chris Chen, and we are going to take 
a question from Isaac, but if it sounds better, it's because I'm in the Ringer Studios. I have been busy supporting my family, my wife. Basically, that's what I do right now. And I haven't been able to record in LA. So if it sounded not so good quality, that's not my fault. That's all Isaac Lee's fault. <laughs> right? And there's a comment on the iTunes uh, podcast page that basically tears us up saying how shitty our audio quality is. And I am just going to use this time to let everyone at The Ringer know that I am unsatisfied with the audio <laughs> oh performance of The Ringer, The Ringer Podcast Network, and I solely blame Isaac Lee. <laughs> oh my God. Listen, in my defense, I am not the one that it's engineering all these sessions. I am not in New York. I'm based in LA. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not Isaac's fault. So let me, let me tell you how this has all worked out. We've recorded a lot of podcasts. So some of the podcasts you're going to hear coming up, we recorded almost like five, six months ago. Because, yeah. you know, when I learned that we were expecting, we needed to bank as many as possible. And we just banked quite a bit. And I have a recorder at home that is not perfect, but that's how I record a lot of the commercials and the intros and the endings. And I sent it over to Isaac. But this is the first time in a long time where we've been in the same room in Los Angeles. So it's a pleasure to talk shit to Isaac Lee. And this is what I hope we can do in the future because not only is the audio better, I like being able to be in the room with people. And maybe this is a feature moving forward where Isaac will ask me questions from the AskDave at MajorDomaMedia.com email. Speaking of which, here's a question from Karen Yee. I've been watching you boil chicken and brisket on your Instagram, and you call it the dark arts. Can you explain what you mean and why it's frowned upon? My mom has boiled chicken my whole life. Great question, Karen. I think it's a larger conversation, which I'll try to tackle right now. It's not just about boiling. It's about acceptance of a variety of different ways to make something delicious. And there's more than one way. And it's funny, on Instagram, I've been posting a lot of different ways of boiling briskets or chickens or pork, you name it. And I've been boiling it in a really hard boil. And I've been joking, it's like a raging hard boil. And you know what? I'm not sharing all of my techniques or what I do because like boiling, you know, is at 212 degrees of water begins to boil, but I could theoretically be putting it in an oven on full blast, covered. There's a lot of different ways I could be, quote unquote, boiling my meat. But I think it's a more interesting conversation because I want to take this position that there's more than one way to make something delicious because when I still tell cooks how to make a delicious soup, they tend to make it like a French stock. And soups and stocks are very different things. Stock is something that is like a backbone of a sauce in a, the French canon. And it might have to do with some aromatics of some bay leaf and black pepper and uh, mirepoix. But the bones of it literally are bones and maybe just a little bit of meat that might be on the carcass itself. And I think cooking that is a very different process than making a soup. And for me growing up, my grandmother and my mother would boil chickens or they'll boil oxtails. And in Korean cuisine, which is very, I think, similar to a lot of the way soups are made in Asia— you just boil the shit out of something, right? And you try to stretch out meat as long as possible. And I love roast chicken. I love roast meats. But we have a lot of ways to cook that. We serve that in our restaurants a ton. And now that I've been cooking at home more and more, I've never cooked at home more than I'm doing right now for my wife that's nursing and the people that visit. I just cook a lot more breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'm looking for efficient ways that cut time and make something delicious and something I can turn a lot of different things from one thing. So if I do a chicken, I just roast it. Yes, in theory, I can make something delicious and crispy and get a Maillard reaction, which is the caramelization of sugars and the concentration of glutamic acid, which is essentially MSG that makes a dish more delicious, right? Which is why you get that golden brown delicious crust on meats that are roasted or grilled. And, you know, boiling it pretty much eliminates that altogether. So I'm not that concerned about it because in my my case as a home cook, I'm trying to recreate those umami and that that sort of, I don't even want to use the word umami, like natural MSG flavors through other means. Because what's more important to me is not slaving away over a kitchen for two hours. I'm trying to make dinner in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and I can do that with a full boil and a chicken. And so I boil the chicken until it's done. I remove the chicken or meat, depending. I might have it in the oven. I might not. 
and I just let it rest. I don't boil the chicken or meat, whatever I'm cooking, to the point where it's like falling off. It's literally just cooked through. If I'm doing a tougher cut of meat like oxtail or brisket or short rib, I'm cooking it till the collagens and the the muscle structure of the animal is broken down so it becomes sort of like, you know, like a traditional braise. But chicken is great because it's something that's delicious and it doesn't cost that much and I can stretch it out. So I can take the chicken out, I can remove the meat from the bone and I can season it and I can just serve it as a sort of like a poached chicken. I can turn it in chicken salad. I can even deep fry the thing if I wanted to. It's an incredibly versatile way of cooking. I don't know if you guys have ever poached chicken or boiled chicken and then chilled it down and then fried it, but it's tremendous and it's very delicious. There's more than one way, but the beautiful thing about what I've just done is I can still serve a delicious chicken, but now I have beautiful broth and I can turn that into congee. I can turn that into now, if I don't add any aromatics and I'm literally just boiling chicken, I can then turn that into a Korean noodle soup, a Chinese noodle soup. I can even turn that into uh, foga, like a very, not an authentic thing, but a step towards making something that might taste Vietnamese. Or if I add thyme and mirepoix of carrots, onions, and celery, and bay leaf, maybe some other things, I can make a pretty traditional American or Western style chicken soup. And I love having that flexibility. So it's very easy for me to ask my wife what she's in the mood for. I'll say, hey, we have chicken today. How would you like it? And the good thing is, is I can turn that one chicken into potentially three different meals. So that's why I like doing it. But I also think from a restaurant's perspective, it's so fucking uncool to tell a young cook we're going to serve boiled chicken. And the reality is, is like, I don't know why we don't celebrate it. It's a very legitimate way of cooking something. It's not celebrated enough in cooking schools. And I'll simply say, boiling chicken is to take a perspective that is non-Western, which is why I try to embrace it. I fully embrace all different ways of cooking meats. But for me, boiling is something that is underrated, needs to be celebrated, and you don't need a fucking Instapot, which I don't own and I will never fucking own. But the reason why I call the dark arts... This all goes into the things that we would never teach you in cooking school. And there are many things that I now believe that I think are like foundational truths to cooking, which I won't get into today, that are not taught in cooking school because it's not from a French culinary perspective or something that is a continental European perspective, something that I long admire and I still admire, but I think there's more than one ways to make something delicious. And that's all I'm trying to argue. And the fact is, some of the things that I'm doing are frowned upon by many traditional established cuisines from Europe, for instance. Again, a lot of it is just sort of temperature. It's almost semantics. But like, it's a joke internally with a lot of cooks that I know because sandbagging is not necessarily boiling hard, but anything you can do to make it easier to make something delicious, yet cutting out time whether it's plating something ahead or making a dish that's already cooked, sandbagging is about preparing. And I think it's the highest form of culinary intelligence, quite frankly. It's not celebrated enough. Is being tricky and sneaky and incredibly thoughtful about how to manipulate your ingredients to a way that allows you to be successful. It's basically like, if I'm talking to you, Isaac, and we're talking about sports, it's someone being yeah. like, wait, like I can pre-plan everything before it even happens. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. Right. It's like when you see an offense coordinator have a the first like series or drives already written yeah, out. Yeah. Is that cheating? No, it's just preparation. Right. I think that being a sandbagging master in cooking is about being crazy prepared. Mm. And ultimately it's truly a sign if you're great at it, being a master of your mise en place, which is essentially the highest form of cooking to me, is when you are so on top of it, you can decide how you want to express yourself in terms of how that food is cooked. And that sounds a highfalutin way of basically just saying you're on top of your shit. So you know how to make it easy. And sandbagging seems to me, at least when I was cooking, frowned upon. Yet, if you can do it without anyone knowing, without a chef knowing, it's not cheating. There are certainly techniques that are downright cheating and not proper. And it's a very hazy way of looking at cooking where sandbagging really is hard to determine what is cheating and what is proper. I'm not the judge, but it's like a gut feeling. It's guttural that you know sandbagging techniques and the dark arts that I joke. And Alex Stupak, for instance, from Empeon in New York is like the highest 
ranking sandbagging dark arts master we've ever produced in American history. So I shouldn't be talking to him. You guys should be talking to Alex about how to do that stuff. Anyway, as you can see, I could talk on and on and on about sandbagging. I take great joy in it. And, you know, I may not be as fast or as good as a cook as someone else, but if I understand the flow, you know, it's like being a wise, grizzly, wily veteran on a team. You just know how to do things a little bit better. So instead of preparing a roast chicken with stuffing and all this other shit, that might take like 90 minutes to two hours to make. I think I'm going to be able to make something more delicious in a quarter of the time. Why wouldn't I try to do that? And if anything, I'm not saying boiling chicken is the only fucking way. Again, I can already see commenters being like, you're a fucking idiot. You can't do that. Yes, I'm an idiot, but I'm not an idiot for liking boiled chicken. It's one of many ways to cook chicken. That's simply it. And sandbagging should be celebrated more. That's all. And I have a lot more to say about it, but I'll shut the fuck up. All right. Uh, we'll just do one more question since we ran long on the first <laughs> one. Reminder to the listeners again, it's askdave at majordomomedia.com. Man, that voice is so smooth, Isaac. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, By the way, was that the most rambling, incoherent? No, no, I, I understood everything, at least. Fuck right. I get so pissed when people say, that's not right. Right. In food, yeah. like as crazy as it sounds, when you start to judge in food what you're allowed to do, mm. that to me is like a small microcosm right. of the problems that we have today in this world. Yeah. There are processes that do not necessarily augment the product. If the product is good, then the product is good. That's all that matters. How you got there, who fucking cares? Right. So, yeah. you know, to each his own, but anyways, next question from Andrew Wiley. What are your thoughts on sous vide cooking at home? I love it, but it kind of feels like cheating. Sous vide cooking at home. Very interesting, Andrew. You will never find me cooking sous vide at home. That will just never happen. <laughs> you know, it's funny how sous vide happened. It's a very old technology. I think it's probably like 30, 40 years old. One of the best cookbooks about sous vide is by the Roca Brothers. The English translation is Wiley Dufresne doing a fantastic forward because Wiley was probably the first American chef to embrace sous vide cooking, even though airports and giant fast food companies have been cooking in vacuum. So sous vide translates to in vacuum. And you're basically cooking in a bag, sucking out all the oxygen and cooking it at a temperature that's constant, where if you cook a piece of steak at, if you cook it at medium rare, it's going to be medium rare. I can't even tell you the temperature. I only know the feel on it right now. But like, let's just say you need a steak at 140 degrees. If you put it in a water bath or some kind of environment that'll keep the temperature at 140 degrees, over time, it's going to be 140 degrees. I mean, the entire sort of item that you're cooking. And it's developed... Um, I'm not going to go too deep in the history of it, but simply it was developed for consistency and packing and storage. And it's all of these things. I have embraced it in the past. And when it first came to be a way of cooking, I embraced it wholeheartedly, not because of cooking in vacuum and sous vide, but for storage. It was very important for me as a small restaurant to utilize it so I can reduce the size. It's almost like those infomercials you see late at night about like being able to reduce your storage closets by putting it in like a vacuum bag. It's a really simple technology. There's other ways you can cook in vacuum, not to promote my cookbook, but years ago we had like a, a joke-ass way of doing sous vide. And that's literally if you just put a plastic bag with like a hanger steak in it with a marinade and you sealed it up as you put it in water, the pressure would escape the bag and you would have sort of like a, a Jimmy rigged sous vide bag. And maybe that works. But as a whole, I would not, do sous vide at home. That's just me. I have friends that would argue against that, but getting a water circulator and doing all of that stuff. Listen, if you're an amateur cook and you want to do that, certainly. But as a professional cook, we do cook some stuff sous vide still, but I don't love it for everything. I think it's good for some things like everything in food. Sous vide is a technique that is good for some things and not everything. I won't tell you exactly all of those things. You can figure it out on your own. But at the end of the day, if I want to eat a delicious ribeye that's been dry aged for like three months, I don't want to put that in a bag. And I want to have sort of the textural contrast that I might get on a grill or have it be pan roasted. Thinking about the movie Burnt, one of the reasons why it's a fucking horrible movie is it's complete and utter faith in how the cooks just embrace sous vide cooking. It means nothing. And uh, it's a dumb way of thinking about how a kitchen would be set up. 
it's like a, a low-hanging fruit to show that you're embracing modern cuisine and cooking. But for home cook, I don't really see how it's useful. That's just me. Like, listen, I'm, I'm sort of an amateur home cook, but I'm never going to say never, but I highly doubt you're going to see me with a water circulator at home. You know what? I don't want this to be a fucking cooking show podcast where I talk incessantly about technique. So ultimately, I'm going to keep this short. No, I would not want to eat at your home if you did a sous vide dinner there. <laughs> nice and quick. Nice little bow to wrap on that. Uh, again, that's askdave at majordomomedia.com. And uh, please send more questions in. Yeah, and give us five stars, however you rate this. And if you are the gentleman that gave us two stars because our audio sucks, we will take care of it with Isaac. Give us five stars on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, however the hell you rate this thing. Stay tuned next week. Thank you.